Let's pray together. Lord God, we do stand in awe of you. You are worthy of our praise and our adoration. And we tend to think that you are worthy of our praise and our adoration for all the things that you have done for us. But I thank you for Eric's reminder that you are worthy of all praise and adoration because of who you are, because you are creator God, because you are gracious and loving, because you are just and mighty, because you are holy and righteous. And so we do praise you simply because you are God above all gods, creator, sustainer, redeemer, and we worship you for who you are and also for all that you have done. We give you thanks for these things. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who, though veiled from us because you are spirit, you have chosen to reveal yourself first and foremost in your son, Jesus. We thank you that if we have seen him, we have seen you. And we thank you that we get to know your son, Jesus, through your word, which you have given us. And God, I ask that as we study Matthew chapter 25 and the parable of the talents this morning, that we would think deeply about this life that you have given us and to the ends in which we are giving it, the way in which we are spending it. And I pray that we would be encouraged to be good stewards with the precious lives that you have given us. So would you bless us as we study your word this morning in Christ's name, amen. So uh, hopefully you're in Matthew 25. Again, if you want one of our Bibles, you can grab one or you could pull it up in an app on your phone. We are going to begin reading in verse 14. So I invite you to read along with me. This is Jesus speaking and he says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. 
But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Man, everybody thinks Jesus is just this like warm, fuzzy, huggy, cuddly, butterfly, rainbow kind of guy. But he, he's got some intense things to say. Anyway, the parable of the talents is... Obviously, a teaching about the kingdom of God, and it invites us to reflect on a question. How am I making the most of my one and only life? And if you're like me in the hustle and bustle and craziness and busyness of life, that's probably not a question that you sit around and contemplate too frequently. But as Christians, we dare not neglect reflecting on this question. Each of us only has one life to live, my friends, and it is flying by much faster than we would probably care to admit, isn't it? And so far be it from us to let this life that God has given us slip through our fingers without frequently reflecting on this question, what am I doing with the investment that God has given me in this life? How am I being purposeful and intentional? Now, we know this is a parable about the kingdom of God because if we look at verse 14, Jesus begins by saying, for it will be like a man going on a journey. Now, that word it, little grammar lesson for you, is a pronoun A pronoun is a word that stands in for something in a sentence, and it actually has an antecedent, something that it refers to. It goes all the way back to verse 1 here in chapter 25, which we didn't read, and we see Jesus there say, for the kingdom of heaven will be like. So here in verse 14, what we find is that Jesus is continuing a wider teaching about what the kingdom of heaven will be like or the kingdom of God so that we get a picture. What can we expect in the world where Jesus is king? And in this case, the picture of the kingdom of God specifically deals with judgment and reward. The judgment that will come at the end of this one life that we have and the reward that we can expect for the kind of life that we lived. And so we're told about a man who goes on a journey. Verse 19 says that he is gone a long time before he returns. Little did those people listening to Jesus know that by a long time, it would be a very, very long time. We are still in the time where we are waiting for the return of the master. But before the master leaves, he entrusts to his servants some wealth for them to manage on his behalf while he is away. And since this is a parable about the kingdom of God, it is obviously meant to be instructive, right? When we read something like this, we are supposed to think, how might this speak to my life? 
So we should understand this master who assigns to his servants a portion of his wealth to be God himself, right? We are getting a picture of God and the way that he acts. And we should understand ourselves to be present in this parable as the servants who have been entrusted with a great stewardship. We too, like the servants in this parable, are stewards of a great gift that God has given us, a great portion of wealth entrusted to us. And we can think about that wealth in terms of our entire lives, okay? Broadly speaking, what is the stewardship given to these, student, these servants? It is their lives. And hopefully you do understand this concept that you are not the author of your own life. Like you probably think about yourself as an independent, autonomous, self-determined individual, but you did not bring about your own origin. You are not the author of your own life. Your life has been given to you. We can certainly speak in terms of your life or my life, that is true. But the truth is that none of us have life at all apart from the gift that God has given to us. It is his life that animates our bodies and gives vitality to our souls. And so we will see in our parable, God's gift of life comes also with expectations. Because your life is not actually yours, the one who gave it to you has expectations for how you spend it. It is his life in us, which means that it is meant to be lived in service to him. It is meant to be given to his purposes, not our own. So the master assigns to three different servants some of his wealth. In the parable, of these, this wealth is called talents. This is a Greek word. It signifies a fairly large unit of money. Actually, it would be equivalent to about 16 years of wages for a typical laborer. So it's a significant amount of money. And the master gives a varying portion of this uh, from a, lead, a lesser amount to a greater amount to these three different servants. And we need to understand that just as our life has been graciously given to us by God, as a vast sum of wealth, we should treasure that and appreciate that wealth. We shouldn't take it for granted. But interestingly, the word talent, obviously in our modern English, we don't use this as a, a unit of money, right? We tend to think about this in terms of maybe abilities. I think that comes out of the Latin word, um, which refers to the human will or desire. So that also makes sense here, right? You have a will that God has given you, and how are you going to invest that will for his purposes, but we can simply summarize by saying the talent in our parable is representative of our whole lives. It's an illustration of all that we are and all that we have. It would include our abilities, our influence, our gifts, our knowledge, our money, the strength that we have, our time, our health, our intellect, our affections, our thoughts, our words, just to name a few things about your life that this parable is referring to. The whole of who we are, body, mind, soul, time, 
and treasure all falls under this heading of the talents. And so the point is our parable is using money to illustrate for us an investment made by a master given to his servants in order that they might put it to use for his purposes. And it's their assignment to make the most of this investment. And then the parable centers around how those servants put those talents to use. And we see in verse 15 that it is the master's choice to apportion to each however he wills, according to how he perceives their abilities to manage this stewardship. And one of the things I find interesting is that in this parable, there's no indication that there should be envy or resentment about how the master chooses to give his wealth in stewardship to these servants. There's only an expectation that each servant will take what he has been given and use it with maximum impact. So while there's no equality of amount that is entrusted to each of the stewards, we do see an equality of expectation Maximum yield on the investment given. And what I find interesting here is that the master is not going to evaluate each of these servants based on his performance relative to the other servants. He is going to evaluate each of these servants in regards to his own efforts to do what is right with the stewardship that he has been given. And so the question is not how they perform when compared to each other, but simply how they perform with respect to themselves. Then in verses 16 through 17, we're told two servants get to work doing just what the master expects, seeking maximum yield on the investment they have been given. One servant takes his five talents, and I think the text implies here that with a little bit of risk, And certainly with some hard work, he makes 100% profit. He doubles that investment. Another servant takes his two talents and he does the same thing, bringing about a yield of 100%. He turns two talents into four. And so we see that both of these servants were diligent in their efforts to take what had been entrusted to them and do as much as they possibly could with it. And then in contrast, we get verse 18, which tells us about the third servant who goes out into his backyard, presumably, and digs a hole and drops that talent in there and buries it, never to think about it again. And we come to find out later in verses 24 through 26 that what motivates the servant to bury the talent is a number of different things, right? Slothfulness, he's lazy, he's fearful of the master, He doesn't want the expectation placed on him that he would do something meaningful with this investment. He resents the master. He says to the master, I know you're the kind of guy and you profit off of things that you don't really work hard for. He doesn't have any desire to see his master benefit from his work. And he's selfish. In the end, he really only cares for himself. And ultimately, the master will say to the servant that he's wicked, that all of these excuses are pretty lame, and they're unbecoming of this servant. 
So the third servant buries the talent, and then we're told in verse 19 that eventually, after a long time, the master returns. He calls these servants to him in order to settle accounts with them. And we find out that the master is well pleased with how the first two servants used this investment. They are praised for their efforts in verses 20 through 23. They don't produce the same amount of money, that's true. One has earned two talents, the other has earned five. And yet notice that each servant is praised in the same way. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Man, I pray for each of you in this room that someday you get to hear that praise from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That when you stand before his throne on Judgment Day, that you would rejoice and delight to hear God say to you, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I long to hear those words. Personally, I long to be found a good steward that I might receive that kind of benediction, blessing, good word from God. Well done, good and faithful servant. You took what was mine and you worked to provide maximum impact through risk and suffering and diligent hard work. You did what is pleasing in my sight. Now, now you will receive a share in your master's joy, everlasting joy. Well done. We're going to come back to the reward in a minute. First, let's deal with this third servant because uh, he's also summoned before the master to give an account for himself. And he comes before the master. I think he actually thinks he's pretty wise that he made some really good decisions here, but he has nothing to show for himself. And so he makes lame excuses and he blames actually the master for the outcome in which he has failed to produce any sort of yield for his master. He claims the boss is an unjust guy. He's the kind of guy who reaps rewards even though he hasn't done any work. He gathers a harvest where he's done nothing to show for it. And this is a lie, right? Because where did the wealth come from in the first place? The master has sown the seeds of these talents by giving them over to these stewards that he has trusted. He's given his riches to these men that they might do something with them. He's provided ample resources. Nothing is lacking that they might turn a profit. And yet the servant blames the master anyway. And of course, he's wrong in his evaluation of the master because we've also seen what kind of man is this master? When the prophet comes back to him, what does he do with it? He says to the servants, why don't you go continue to manage it? Why don't you take the riches that are rightfully mine and have greater authority and responsibility, not only over five talents, but now 10, not over two, but over four? He is the kind of guy who passes around the blessing of his riches to those who serve him well. He generously rewards those who do what is praiseworthy in his eyes. 
And verse 27 makes it abundantly clear that this wicked servant is only making excuses for his laziness and for his disdain for the master. Because if he knew that his master was a hard man who liked to reap benefits where he did no work, then as Jesus tells in the story, the master says, you should have at least put the money in a bank. You could have at least got a reward of 2% or maybe 0.2% or 0.02%, depending on where you do your banking these days. The point is, without any work at all, he could have at least earned some kind of interest. But he's a lazy, self-centered man, and so he didn't even make that effort. He simply buried the wealth. He did nothing at all. The truth is, this servant didn't want to serve the master. Not even a little bit by putting the money in the bank. And notice, notice that in this parable, this man is not condemned for actively working against the master. He is condemned simply for doing nothing. Nothing. And this is an important point for us as Christians because I think sometimes we believe that in the end, God's judgment will fall upon those who were wicked and evil and stood in opposition to him, who were actively opposed to him. But I think this parable reveals that God, the master, will also have condemning judgment for those who did just nothing. God is obviously not pleased with those who oppose him, right? God hates unrighteousness. He hates evil. His wrath is upon those who are opposed to him. But you need to understand that God is equally displeased by those who take the life that he has graciously given to them and with it do nothing at all. Yeah, it's bad to squander the master's wealth. That's true. And it would certainly be worse to take the talents that the master gave to the servant and invest them in a way that was in opposition to the master. That's true. Doing evil. But it is also a great wickedness in the eyes of God to take what he has graciously given to us and simply do nothing with it. There's an interesting verse in Daniel 5.23 and it says, The God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. The God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. And because this servant failed to honor the master, what is or what was entrusted to him then in the end is taken away. And we're told in verse 29, everyone who has, more will be given. And to the one who has little, even the little that he has will be taken from him. Now, to our American sensibilities, isn't this an offensive verse? Aren't you sort of like, oh, that's not really like equity or equality or whatever word they're using these days to talk about what's fair, that the rich would be made richer and the poor would be made poorer? What kind of God is this who would take from those who have little and leave them with nothing and give to those who have much even more that they might be further enriched? But this is what God is like. Actually, he is just. If you've been paying attention to the parable, this is justice. 
God is looking for those who are good stewards. And to those who are good stewards, he will give a greater stewardship. And to those who are bad stewards, he will take away from them even the little that they have to steward. God wants to entrust the riches of his kingdom to those who can faithfully manage those riches. And the truth is, those who squander their lives doing nothing to honor God who gave them life are simply not worthy of the kingdom of God. And those who invest themselves to serve the master with all of their hearts prove themselves to be worthy of an even greater stewardship. Now, quickly, there is some debate about whether this parable is about Christians or about just humanity in general. I would submit to you that this is a parable about just people, about humanity. Based on the context, notice the teaching that follows our parable. If you were to go down to verses 31 through 46, and if you just skim it real quickly, what you find there is that following this parable, Jesus gives a teaching about the final judgment, where God will separate the goats from the sheep, the unbelievers from the believers, the Christians from the non-Christians. And that teaching where Jesus is speaking there is about all nations. It's about how God will evaluate all people for the way that they honored him with their lives or dishonored him. And so I think the parable of the talents is broadly speaking about every person who has been given life and how they choose to invest that life either in honor of the God who is the giver of life or doing nothing to honor him. And to those who have the spirit of grace and who serve God, in the end, they will receive even more. Eternal life and everlasting joy in the presence of the master. And to those who don't have the spirit of grace and do not serve God, even the little goodness that they have in this life, the little goodness like a wonderful Thanksgiving meal spent with their friends and their family, and the comfort of living in America and the freedoms that they have to live their life how they choose, even those little goodness that comes from God, the God who they do not acknowledge or give honor to, even that will be taken from them and they will be cast into the outer darkness, a place of suffering and loneliness and hardship. Now the parable of the talents speaks to us who are already Christians reminding us that you especially understanding that your life is a gift of God's grace, don't waste it doing nothing. Invest it for God's glory. So here are two major principles I want you to take away from the parable of the talents, okay? First, you might be wondering, okay, Grady, what you're saying here sounds suspiciously like a kind of works salvation, Are you saying that my entrance into the kingdom of God is determined upon how I spend my life working for God? Is this parable telling us that our efforts are what make us right in the eyes of the master? And I would say in response to that, yes and no, okay? This parable is not about how you get into the kingdom of God. This is not a parable about salvation, 
It is a parable about doing what pleases God. See, ultimately, what brings each person into the kingdom of God is not anything that they do themselves. It is a gift that comes to you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Entrance into the kingdom of God is not something that you achieve with your own effort. It is something that Jesus achieved for you when he shed his blood to die on the cross for your sins. And all those who place their faith in Jesus will be saved and will enter into the kingdom of God by virtue of his work on the cross. None of our works could ever atone for our sin. And if you're trying that route, you're trying to make yourself right in the eyes of God. Aren't you tired of that, that rat race? You can't seem to shake the sense of guilt before God because you cannot. It can only be cast off through the blood of Jesus Christ. But once we receive the gift of grace, you will be rewarded based on your efforts. Did you know that? Our God is a just God. And he will reward each person who belongs to him as a child of God in his, in his kingdom in proportion to the efforts with which they served him. Yes, we are saved by grace. But what we do in response to that grace that we have been given is of the utmost importance. Now, unfortunately, and, and maybe for some of you in this room, even though you've been exposed to church for a while, you've never heard this, actually. Because unfortunately, a lot of times, in order to safeguard the idea that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we refuse to talk about the fact that what you do, once you are saved, really, really matters. And you are storing up for yourself reward in the kingdom of God based on the way that you live your life. And sometimes we cringe at this because somehow we have come to believe that any reward connected to our effort is somehow opposed to salvation by grace. But it's not. So here's a principle for you that you need to understand as a Christian. Grace is contrary to earning, but it is not contrary to effort. Grace is contrary to earning, but it is not contrary to effort. Grace means that you cannot enter the kingdom of God by virtue of your own efforts. True. You cannot earn God's love. It is only available as a gift. But grace does not mean that what you do to serve God once you are a Christian is meaningless. Your faithfulness is vitally important. And actually, you will be judged at the end based on your faithfulness. Notice the praise of the master in verses 21 and 23. The praise is given to the servants because they worked hard to please this master with the talents that he entrusted to them. And we see that there's a greater and lesser reward. It's not actually equal. God is a just God. And so I think scripture is pretty clear that he will pour out his wrath on sinners in proportion to the wickedness and evil that they give themselves over to in this life. 
And conversely, he will reward those who place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation in proportion to the good they do in accordance with his commands. And so that begs the question, what kind of reward do you want on the day of judgment? Yes, each of us who place our faith in Jesus will be saved. Praise God for that. Because Jesus has won the reward of our salvation through his work. But in addition to the reward of salvation, the reward of righteousness that is ours through what Jesus has done, in addition to the reward of eternal life, God is planning to apportion to each one of you some reward. I don't know exactly even what that means in his kingdom. But it will be in accordance with the way that you spent your one and only life. And shouldn't that motivate us then as Christians to do everything we can to serve this God with all of our hearts? And isn't it interesting that God, even knowing what kind of selfish people we are, offers us this kind of motivation? Obviously do it for his sake because he's Lord and God and he's worthy of all glory, but also do it for your sake. Don't you want to be found faithful that you might be a steward over something even greater than the life that you have currently been given? Now this leads us to our second and final closing point here, which is a reminder that you only get one shot at this. Don't let the busyness of life steal from you the gravity of this truth. You get one single shot at this. The arrow of time, it only moves in one direction. Doesn't that drive you nuts? It just moves onward and onward and onward and the pace never slows down and it never stops. You cannot hit the pause button. You cannot go back. There is a final destination that is swiftly approaching and you will step off the train of this life and you will stand before God to give an account for the one life that he has blessed you with. And each day that passes is a day spent that you can never get back, my friends. Um, next year, <clears throat> I'm turning 40 and I can tell you turning 40 is like totally messed with my head. Because I'm starting to do the math and I'm like, that's like the downhill slope. And uh, I mean, I planted Maricopa Springs when I was 25 and I thought that I knew what I was doing and, I, you know, I thought I would like conquer the world and now I'm 40 and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm moving towards the back nine, right? And life is just brief. Days and weeks and years go by. My phone has started doing this really cruel thing recently. I don't know, I must have like logged into some app and Google Photos blinks like almost every day and it's like 10 years ago. And I'm like, I don't want to look at that. That felt like yesterday. And I can't get the time back. And so I stand here actually imploring myself as much as I am imploring you to understand. Let us not waste away 
our days, this single life that we have been given, doing nothing like the wicked servant in our parable. You can't take it back. And so let's seek to take every day and every thought and every action captive in service to our God who has given us this stewardship. Because on the day of judgment, we will give an account for how we chose to steward the life we've been given and how much embarrassment might we be made to suffer on that day if we are forced to make excuses for all of the meaningless pursuits that we gave ourselves to. Now, this doesn't mean, my friends, that you have to become a pastor to make the most of your talents or that you need to be in full-time ministry. It doesn't mean that you need to spend every moment of every day reading your Bible and doing evangelism and serving the church. Don't, please don't misunderstand. It just means that we need to seek on a regular basis to infuse more of what we do with intentionality for the glory of Jesus Christ. Every thought we have, every action we take, every endeavor that we are engaged in for the joy of the Lord. Did you know that you can do dishes and you can pull weeds to the praise of Jesus Christ? I know you probably don't believe it, but you can. You can raise your children in the fear of the Lord and not look at them one day as grown individuals and regret that you failed to point them to Jesus like you should have. You can conquer your fleeting feelings that one day feel high and another day feel low, one day rejoice and another day despair. You can conquer those fleeting feelings with the pleasure of the master. And you can choose to rejoice in the work that he has given you in the life that he has entrusted to you. You can go through seasons of suffering as difficult as they are as just a regular person learning to rejoice in the sovereign goodness of God even in the midst of your heartache, proving that you trust him. We can walk each day choosing to live in the spirit and deny the sinful desires of the flesh, honoring God in our simple daily choices. That's praiseworthy. Do you understand that even something as simple as that, at the end of all things, when you stand before the master, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. We can even go to work doing our menial jobs for worldly, pagan, secular companies. Yes, even that you can do to the praise of the glorious grace of Jesus Christ when you do it with an attitude of thanksgiving and joy with a work ethic that proves that you are giving yourself over to serving God and not man. It is possible for you and I in our daily lives to be like these praiseworthy servants surrendered to work for the master so that at the end of all of it, we might hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And don't you long for that. Now, I really will close with this. What will motivate you in this work? What will motivate me in this work? What could possibly drive you to give all of your heart and all of your life over to God in service to him and his kingdom, especially on those days when it feels tedious and difficult? Do you know where I'm going with this? 
Well, it would be obviously to look to Jesus. Because don't you understand? Yes, he went to the cross to give himself to the work that the Father gave him to do. But he also did it for you. The Master has served you. That's why you are redeemed and blessed and saved. Jesus became a servant like you. That he might show to you the love that he has for you. And so the inspiration for us to serve the master with all that we have and all that we are is the truth that the master has served us. Isn't that beautiful? With devotion so great that he even laid down his life. That you might be blessed through his sacrifice. And it's because Jesus has served us in this way that we would then long for him to have all of our hearts and all of our lives and all of our obedience to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. God, I do ask that what would drive us to serve you is not fear or shame, not even a need to prove ourselves, but that what would drive us to serve you is simply looking at the cross where we see that you are a God who chose to serve us. And we were so undeserving of that love. And you are a God who is deserving of all praise and glory and adoration. And so I pray that our hearts would be fully committed to being good stewards to taking all of our talents and all of who we are, the entirety of our lives, and giving them over to this work. And I pray, Lord, I truly pray for each person in this room that at the end of this life of service, we would hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And I pray that we would seek that joy not only in the life to come, but each and every day in this life as we draw near to Christ. In his name, amen.